You're listening to episode 119 of Diferente. This is the second episode in a six-part series on access. Access is a hot topic these days. Some want to restrict it and others want to protect it. But the fact remains that our communities need access to education, mentorship, money, sports, networking, and strong community leadership in order to grow. Access is what some people would consider to be a privilege. And it's true because you could have all the tools and talent in the world, but if you don't have access, how will anybody know your name? My guest this episode is Shauna Compton Game. She's a certified financial planner living in California who has her own story of financial struggle, growth, and freedom. She hosts the popular podcast Millennial Money, where she believes that with a few tools, some real life education, and a little kick in the butt, you can truly master your money and live the life that you want. We discuss the things that help us access financial freedom through making the right decisions for our lifestyles so we can grow our wealth and lower our debt while also finding new sources of income. Hello, side hustles and entrepreneurship. Shauna shared fantastic money tips and upcoming trends that we could all benefit from. I hope you're as excited as I am to share this information with you. But first, the obligatory Diferente intro. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Shauna, thanks for joining us on Diferente. Awesome. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you as well. So this episode is part of our series on access to personal growth and career development. And today we're discussing how we can get access through money. And listeners are probably thinking right now, okay, great. How do we get that money? Well, (laughs) (laughs) that's what we're here to discuss. This is a Diferente take on how to grow our money. Let's begin with your story, though. Where did you grow up? I actually was born in the Midwest in Indiana, and then I left there about two years old and then went to Houston, Texas for about seven years. And then the rest of the time has been in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. So you moved to Los Angeles as a kid. Yes. And that's probably the worst time to move to Los Angeles. (laughs) I don't suggest going to middle school and high school in Los Angeles. It was a little bit like a slow torture test. Oh my gosh. Why? Every stereotype probably that you would think of when you think of Los Angeles exists in the school system. So I mean, anywhere you go, you're going to obviously have peer pressure and catty girls and cliques and all that sort of stuff. But I think there's just something about LA, in particular, the areas of town where I went to school, where there was a lot of wealth from a lot of students and you had lots of comparison situations that maybe you didn't have somewhere else. Certainly when everybody turned 16, you know, everybody got a Mercedes and a BMW and all of that, you know, and I'm here in like my little used Honda Accord 
driving around. So, you know, everything that you would think of, I would say amplified over anywhere else, certainly from other stories, you know, there was, you'd go in the bathroom and like seventh and eighth grade, you know, and there were kids doing drugs in the bathroom. And I just came from Texas and I was like, what is this? You know, and we had kids in our carpool who were young, who were in elementary school, you know, and everybody's like cursing up a storm and dropping F-bombs. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, like I haven't even heard of these words. So it was just a complete eye-opening experience. And I was very happy after high school to kind of get out of LA for a while. Where did you go to college? I went back to Indiana, Indiana University for my undergraduate degree, and I'm so happy I did because Indiana University is in this small town in Indiana, like a real true college town when you think of college. And I actually started my very first business while I was in college, and I don't think I would have been able to do that successfully if I hadn't been somewhere like that for for my undergrad degree. I got my my MBA and all my other degrees out here in LA, but I think that was just such a great like grounding experience for me. And then you ended up going back to LA. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, when you were a kid, what did you dream of being as an adult? If you ask anybody in my family, they would probably say in charge. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, you know, kind of that type A. But I, I always grew up knowing I wanted to do something that made a difference. I don't necessarily know if I knew what that would be, but I always felt like I would be leading something, uh, speaking, writing. I always felt that I had those type of elements to me. I loved performing. You know, I was a shy kid, but then if you put me on stage, you know, I had absolutely no problem talking and those sorts of things. But when I graduated high school, I thought I actually wanted to be a film producer. So when I got to college, I came up with the idea to start what was at the time the first National Student Film Festival. And oh, I, wow. I ran it for five years. I sold it to a big wig Hollywood producer when I graduated. And it was the best experience because I was so completely fearless. So I I don't really know if I knew exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I definitely knew I wanted to do something that made a difference and use my creative talents to, to spread a mission or a vision about life. And now, was I correct in saying that you went back to LA after college? Yes. So when I had graduated, I was still running my film festival. I ran it for another year after I graduated before I sold it. And so the person that was going to buy the film festival required me to stay on for a year. And I came back to LA to work at his startup company, heading up the college programming division, where we were coming up with all sorts of creative ideas to reach college students. And the irony behind that all is during the festival run, all of these students, over 200 students, got jobs and internships in the entertainment industry. Many of them now are big actors, writers, producers, editors, you name it. So it definitely fulfilled that mission, but all of the really awesome jobs, I became the funnel and kind of handed them off to other people that, you know, as a connector source. So when this Hollywood producer's film company ended up crumbling, basically, in a year, my film festival kind of crumbled with it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've, you know, all of these amazing jobs have been basically hand handed to all these people that came to my festival. And I walked away from all of those job opportunities. And it was a moment of like, what in the world am I going to do? <laughs> I, 
I have this complete crazy like bag of skills and I don't know what to do with them because it doesn't necessarily make sense to me. And so there were definite moments of just like sheer dread and fear over how do you recreate yourself and a moment of, well, okay, do I really want to do this? And what do I really want to do? And that took me quite a while actually to figure out. I'm still figuring that out. (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Exactly. That's the lesson I definitely learned. (laughs) We all don't really know what we're doing. Right. But you ended up in the world of finance. Now, is that because I, I've been listening to your podcast, so I know that your dad is in the finance world. Is, is he the reason you are doing what you're doing now? Probably. I grew up with dinnertime conversations about money and about business and about entrepreneurship, how to invest, like all of those topics I grew up with, they were just part of my vocabulary. So I didn't really think anything of it. And then When I ran the film festival, you know, I had to develop these like kind of crazy ninja budgeting skills. And I had to be really good at seeing between the lines of, you know, making something work when a lot of times I didn't have a lot of money. And I just had to develop this sense. And I didn't really know what it was at the time. Now I understand it's my greatest asset, but it took me a while to figure it out. So after the festival crumbled and I I got my MBA and I was really just, kind of, I don't know, walking around in the dark trying to figure out what I wanted to do. You know, my dad said, hey, he had a small kind of boutique financial planning firm. And he's like, why don't we just see if we can work together? You know, if we if we don't kill each other, why don't we see if we could we could do this together? <laughs> and I thought, well, I always love the business side of things too. I just wasn't sure how to marry the business with the creative side. That was really, you know, what I was figuring out. And so from day one working with him, we were working with clients that had hundreds of millions of dollars in assets and solving problems for them. And so I got an experience and a knowledge base that I really wouldn't have gotten any other way if I had come up in this industry. So it was really like second nature to, I think, go into this business because it's what I knew. Can you explain what it takes to get to be a, tell me the correct term, certified financial? Certified financial planner. And it's basically the highest kind of echelon of of financial planning. And financial planning is this really bizarre industry because, you know, like in the field of law, you and I couldn't just go out on the corner and say, we're a lawyer and start writing contracts for people. Well, we could, but... Mm -hmm. (laughs) That would not be a good idea. (laughs) We would have to go pass the bar exam and become a lawyer. And the finance world is different, and it's really bizarre that it's different. You can say you're a financial expert or a financial planner without any of the degrees and certifications. And the problem is there are a lot of people doing that and putting themselves out as a financial planner when they really haven't worked with clients. I see this a lot in the blog world where people Mm -hmm. are. Blogging about money and money, blogging about money is great. I mean, the more knowledge we can share, the better, but you have to also be careful with what advice you take. So becoming a certified financial planner means that you had to go through a specific coursework and then you had to pass the hardest test I've ever taken in my life. For me, it was a (laughs) two-day test. Now it's an all-day test. No, that sounds awful. It was really super tough. And you had to become an expert in every single part of financial planning. So when you become a certified financial planner, 
I am ethically required to manage my clients and put their best interest far before mine. I'm also required to take a certain amount of coursework, and I'm just held to a higher standard than if someone just stood out on the corner and said they were a financial planner. So there's kind of a moral and ethical obligation as a certified financial planner, and you just had to become really good at knowing a lot of stuff about financial planning. And you're also a professor, right? You're teaching finance now. Yeah, I mean, I have way too many jobs. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but I think we're too about that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a a little bit like a glutton for punishment. (laughs) Yeah, six years ago, California State University Northridge, they had come to me and said that they wanted to start financial literacy courses. God, is it seven years now? It's a long time. And they said, we don't have a syllabus. This was like two weeks before the semester. (laughs) They're like, we don't have a syllabus. We don't know what to teach. So you just make the whole thing up. And so I thought, okay, well, what would I have wanted to know if I was that age? What would help me when I graduate? Maybe just be in a little bit better position with with money. And so I created the whole course around that. It's half online, half in class. And we don't use a textbook at all. We use podcasts and YouTube and articles and all sorts of different things. I love that. Yeah, it helps make money more relatable and it helps it come alive. And any homework that they have in class is directly related to them. So my hope is that when they finish the class, there's at least a few bits of information they remember enough so that, you know, when they get their first job, they'll be in a better position than, you know, their peers. Wow. That's awesome. I think <laughs> That's so funny. You came full circle from a creative career, started as a creative then went into the business side. And then now you're actually creating again because you are you created a podcast, which is fantastic. We'll talk about it in a little bit. <laughs> Life is like that. I think that's the cool part. Like when you can look back at your story and you can see those like through lines and how when they didn't make sense when you were maybe going through it. And now you're like, oh, that makes sense now. Absolutely. What is the worst mistake you've ever made with your money? Where do we start? I'm fully transparent on my podcast. And I think that hopefully that's what people can relate to is even if you're an expert in something, it doesn't mean you're perfect. And so if I know all of the tips and tricks and I'm still not doing it all correctly, that you're totally off the hook. The worst mistake, I don't know what I would put as the worst. I know the most difficult in my just After I turned 30, I got divorced and it was the most financially devastating time of my life. I lost all my assets as part of the negotiation and had to take on a lot of debt. Mm. And it was basically like starting over again. So any retirement that I had built, we had a house, we had a like vacation property, all of it was just vaporized. And it was this weird time where I was both so elated and so happy and felt so free and and so myself. But if I looked at my finances, (laughs) it would freak me out. I mean, my credit score got ruined. Uh, You know, you name it, like every domino that could fall, fell in one fellow swoop. And so I really had to redefine how I thought about money and how I thought about my life and that connection between money and success and what you want your life to be like and happiness, all those things I had to really dig deep and take a look at. And there was there was a period of time where I 
felt guilty for working with people about their finances. Like, who am I to, to help them? And then there was just this aha moment of, no, I'm the perfect person because I've been through a lot of stuff and I can help you prepare for stuff. You're going to have your own stuff that happens to you, but I can help you prepare for that. But then I can also help motivate you because we all tend to try and look glossy from the outside. But in the inside, this is tough. Money's tough. Nobody talks about this stuff. And so if I can be that relatable to somebody, I really feel like going through that experience was a gift, even though it's still really hard. Right. It sounds like the worst mistake you ever made with money was actually marrying the wrong person. (laughs) Yeah, that would probably be the good definition of it. Yep. Yep. I don't suggest doing that. (laughs) We could go so many ways with this. But back to financial topics. So in your March 26th episode of Millennial Money, which again, I highly suggest to our listeners, I can't get enough of your podcast, seriously. You talked about two ways to do money differently. And this is why I really wanted to bring you on because I felt that the finance industry is so busy following this cookie cutter approach to financial planning. But the truth is that many of us don't fall into that box, or maybe we want to get out of that box and find more innovative ways of making and using our money. So let's start with saving money. Why do you think it's so hard for people to save money? And what are some tips that you could give us on making this step easier? I think saving money always feels like a chore, you know? And what we tend to do is we tend to go, okay, my goal is, I'm just making this up. My goal is to save $200 a month. So I'm going to go through the whole month, da, 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 da. And then when I get to the end, I'm going to look at my bank account and go, there's not $200 in there for me to save. Okay, I'll just do it next month. And so we tend to put it as like the last priority when we should think of it like another almost bill we have to pay, except the beauty of it is that you're actually paying yourself. So I always like to suggest putting savings as a fixed expense, something that you have to commit to every single month. And the easiest way to do this is just to have it auto-transferred from your bank account into a savings account. You don't even know it's there. You know, you don't miss it and it's growing on the side. And so I think it's just with most things around money, it's a slight shift in the mindset around money, around why you're doing something, around connecting it to a goal. And I have found when you can say, okay, I'm committing to saving $200 every month before I go out and party with my friends and go have happy hours and all of those sorts of things, because I know that I want to go on a vacation to Hawaii in a year or buy a house in six months or whatever it may be for you. And so I have found like when you can connect those dots, it's really powerful in your brain to shift it from something negative to something positive. Like, oh man, I can't wait to get that 200 bucks in my savings account because now I'm 200 bucks closer to whatever that thing is that I'm trying to achieve. And so I just think we grow up with this perception around money. All of us do that. It's a chore. It's hard. You know, nobody likes to budget all of these certain things. And then we're not taught how to do any of this. So most of us are graduating with student loan debt or credit card debt, and it already feels overwhelming. So the question I always get asked is, well, why would I save money if I have student loan debt? Or why would I save money if I've got credit card debt? And it's shifting that perspective to go, absolutely, you got to pay off your student loans. You got to pay off your credit card debt, all of that for sure. 
but you also got to be propelling yourself forward. And that's what savings really does for you. Yeah, that's a very good point. Because sometimes people just automatically say, well, I can't save. I don't have any room in my budget to save. But if you look at it from that perspective of you're actually paying another bill, quote unquote, then you're not even thinking about it. It's just coming out of your paycheck. And some companies will actually let you set up two accounts on your direct deposit so you can have your regular checking account and then you can have a certain percentage of your check go into your savings account, which I think works wonders. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great habit to get into. And I challenge everybody who says they don't have money to save. I can find money. I guarantee you that is my super special talent. I can find savings for you. It may not be a lot, but that doesn't matter. The The point is getting in a habit of looking at where you're spending your money finding a few ways to kind of cut or do something maybe a little bit different here or there. You don't even necessarily have to give up anything that you like to do. Maybe there's just a way to do it better. You could save a few bucks here and there and there and here. And when you put all of that together, you know, at the end of the month, maybe you only have 20 bucks or 25 bucks. Maybe you have a thousand bucks. I don't know what that is for you, but I guarantee you, I have not seen one person where I've not been able to help them figure out a way to save something every single month. So that's really where that mind shift comes in and connecting to, okay, I got to find a way to do this because I got stuff I want to do with my life. And setting those goals is important as well so that you know what you're working towards. Um, moving on to investing for the now and the future. We know we need to save for retirement and we need to save for emergencies, but some people want to invest in the now as well. I mean, I keep thinking of this. Life is short and we don't want to wait until we're 65 to do what we love. So what are some other smart ways of investing that will give us extra cash flow now or sooner rather than at retirement? That's a good question. And it's tough because it's not one size fits all. You know, everything is personal and different. And I think retirement for us and for younger generations is going to look completely different than it has for any other generation. I just truly believe that. A, we're going to live longer. But B, I think that we are more committed to finding work that we're passionate about, that we can stay doing for a long period of time. In fact, I even think that most millennials and younger generations won't actually retire. You'll kind of stop working for a little bit and then start working again and then stop working and start working a little bit again. I just think the the concept around retirement is going to change. Now, that doesn't mean you you shouldn't be saving for retirement or saving. I don't even like to call it retirement. I call it lifestyle fun. Yeah. So you're saving for something in the future that you want to do. And unfortunately, or fortunately, still the best places you could put your money is in a 401k, an IRA, or in a Roth. I mean, there just isn't a whole lot of um, ways to sugarcoat that. <laughs> Certainly in a 401k, if you're getting an employer match, that's free money to you. And I always tell people, like, if you were walking down the street and there was a $10 bill laying there, and provided it was nobody else's, would you pick it up? And everybody's like, well, of course I would pick it up. And I'm like, exactly. That's what the match is in your 401k. Your employer's like, hey, here's some free money. So that can really help like boost your investment account. There's all sorts of apps now you can use, like Acorns is a great one. Uh, where you can invest outside of your 401k, or if you just want to like dip your toes in the water of investing, they work a lot off that spare change concept. Mm -hmm. So they'll roll 
a certain percentage of money into the app, and then you can invest it in portfolios, depending on your risk tolerance, how risky you want to be. You know, real estate, a lot of people say to me, I don't need to save for a retirement. My retirement is my home. Like, ooh, I would caution over that. Well, you're not that's alive in 2008. One, <laughs> right. I'm like, that's one bucket of wealth. I like to talk about like buckets of wealth because I think it's an easy concept for people to understand. And you want to have lots of different buckets. So you have lots of different options. So you're not reliant on one thing or the other. You may have to have other investments that are working for you is definitely something to think about. Hey, you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. What are you doing with this podcast? Are you sharing it with your friends? Because one of the best ways to let somebody know that you care about them is by sharing thought-inspiring content with them. Like this podcast, where we share stories and experiences that expose us to different perspectives. Here are three easy ways to share the show. You can take a screenshot of this episode and post it on social media, text it directly to anyone in your contact list, or you can also send them the link to our website, diferentepodcast.com. Voila! Super simple. If you like Diferente, the best way to support us is by sharing it, sharing it, and sharing it some more. Now let's get on with the show. And I have a friend who recently told me that he has some extra cash and wants to know what he should do with it. What do you think is the best way to make extra cash work for you, assuming that you don't have to pay off any debt or build up an emergency fund? It depends on how soon you need the extra cash. If you need it relatively soon or had to have access to it relatively soon, you got to keep it someplace that's liquid. So a high-yield savings account, like a Ally Bank, or there's one Marcus by Goldman Sachs, great place. You're going to get more interest than you will over your bank account. That's always a plus. You can also, if you qualify, a Roth IRA can be a good idea for some people because although you don't get a tax deduction putting the money in the Roth IRA, when you retire, you don't have to pay taxes because essentially you've put after-tax money in the Roth. But thinking about for now, any money that you have put into a Roth, you can take out without tax or penalty at any time. You just can't touch the gain in that until 59 and a half. So a lot of times people are using Roth IRAs to just push some cash in, maybe get a little investment growth. And then if they need that cash for emergencies or whatever it may be, they could take the money out and maybe they've grown their account some. So that's another good idea. But you really have to think about like, how soon do I need that cash? And where else am I putting my money so that I can make sure that I'm maybe working on a couple of those other buckets of wealth? But I think you should also be thinking about your risks. So a lot of times we avoid thinking about the risks that we're exposed to. In particular, like car insurance is one of those things where we just, we tend to search for the lowest policy possible. And that's not always the best policy. And so when you start growing your wealth, there could potentially be a lot of exposure to you if you were to get in an accident and someone was to sue you because those car insurance have limits as to how much they'll pay out. And there are a lot of states that aren't as uh, sue happy as they are in, in California. But I had a friend who was just financially devastated because she had had this car insurance policy that she had had in her 20s. She'd never really changed it or updated it. Now she made significantly more money. She got in a car accident. And they sued her and she was in a lawsuit where it was a million dollars over what her car insurance would pay. So there's a lot of things to think about, not only growing your money and growing your wealth, but also, am I making sure that I'm protected in case something happens to me? 
in case I lose my income, obviously in case you lose your life. But these other risks that are floating out there, making sure that you're, you know, you're covering your ass on those as well is generally a good idea. A lot of the times we use our extra money to put a down payment either on a home or a car. Should you lease or buy a car? When do you make that decision, either going one way or another? What do you think in your experience is, is the smartest thing to do for your money, lease or buy? Yeah, that's a really great question. I get asked that a lot. And as most things with finance, I always answer with, well, it depends. <laughs> People get really frustrated, but that's usually the answer. You know, there isn't a black and white. Leasing obviously is going to offer you a lower payment, monthly payment, but there are complications that come with leases. There's the mileage complication. So if you drive far, drive distance for work, that's not a good idea. If you end up turning that leased car in and you owe on mileage or there's damage to your car, you're going to end up paying a fair amount of money just to get out of that lease. And then, of course, at the end of the lease, you don't have anything. You know, so it's, it's very much like renting your car. And for some people, that works great. If you're an entrepreneur, if you are a small business owner and you write off expenses and you use your car as a business expense, leasing can be a great idea. If you don't have any of those options available to you, you have to be super careful when you lease and you have to make sure that it really meets your needs and that at the end of that lease period that you have a plan B for what you're going to do after that lease period. A lot of times people end up leasing again. Sometimes people end up buying out the lease, which usually is not a good idea at all because you usually end up paying a lot more money than if you would have just bought the car to begin with. So I think you just have to look at your at your life, at your driving habits, and figure out whether that really makes sense for you. Yeah, I think the issue with cars is that because they're a depreciating asset, it's kind of hard for me to think that it's smart to actually buy a car as opposed to lease it. That's for me, that's my personal opinion, because I just feel like you're putting all this money into a car that's just depreciating. You're right. I mean, you drive a car off the lot. It doesn't matter whether you're leasing or you're buying. It's going to depreciate mm -hmm. 20, 30% the mm -hmm. minute you drive it off the lot. So, you know, there isn't necessarily the greatest solution. I'm a huge fan of buying like a one or two year old used car with low mileage. And you usually can get a fairly nice discount and it, it tends to make sense. But again, you, you kind of have to look at your life. And if you have a preference towards one or the other, there's nothing wrong with that as long as it works out for you financially good in you know, the long run. You know, after talking about risk with car insurance and then you know, leasing versus buying a car with the depreciation and everything, I think I'm just going to wait until the self-driving cars come out and I'm just not going to drive anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm just going to get a chauffeur. That's going to make my life so just much easier. Just Uber and Lyft <laughs> everywhere and just wait around for that self-driving car to come. I mean, it's just a matter of time. <laughs> exactly. Although the idea of it is still slightly scary to me. <laughs> a little bit. I'm I, a little bit of a control freak. So I was going to say, I think it's that control side. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I would. I, that would take me a while to like feel good with that one. And trust them. Yeah. So for the entrepreneurs who are listening, can you talk about the best ways to fund the launch of a business? Make sure that you build up a nice, beefy emergency fund before you quit your job. <laughs> that is my best piece of advice. And a lot of times people are, you know, I've given the advice to a lot of people of like, if you stayed working in your job for six months longer, you would have X amount more money in your emergency fund 
which would end up funding X amount more months in your business. And a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't want to do six months more. I'm like, oh, but please just trust me. Uh, you know, all of the businesses that I have started, I have self-funded. And it takes a while to, to get growth unless you have a built-in customer base, which most people don't right off the bat. There's all sorts of fees that, depending on your business, that you could run into. You know, obviously, you, you got to have a website and you got to have phones and you got to have sometimes, you know, copy machines and all of this different equipment and, and things that go into it. But there are some businesses, obviously, that are less expensive to start. But you really have to have a good idea over what are your costs to get up and running. And then also, what are your monthly expenses on an ongoing basis? And it's a little hard to figure that out before you start the business. But that's why if you could talk to somebody who's in the same industry or anybody that you could pick their brain on, that's such a good idea to figure out as best as you can. Because then you have an idea of what is my burn rate? How long can I try this? If I have zero dollars coming in before I have to close up shop. And, you know, if you have a spouse or a boyfriend, girlfriend who has a great job and they're willing to, you know, pick up all of the expenses while you give it a try, that's amazing and wonderful. Not all of us have that luxury. <laughs> but I think the more you can get yourself in a really good position, if you could pay down your debt, if you, you know, if you could get yourself in just a banging position that will really help you, you know, because there aren't a lot of startup businesses these days that get business loans or anything that would have even 10 or 15 years ago been available. So you have to be super creative. Can you borrow money from your parents at a low interest rate? What can you do creatively that isn't going to require you taking on more debt that you can't pay off in a short period of time to help you get up and running? What are some creative ways that entrepreneurs can raise capital when their company is still developing. So just a small business. <laughs> Beg, borrow, and steal. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? If you've already taken the plunge and you can't really go back to your old job and you just want to raise money to grow, because I mean, I think that happens to a lot of small businesses. They get stuck because they're in that, oh my gosh, I have it just enough to make it but I can't invest more to grow. And that's the problem for a lot of businesses. Absolutely. You know, there are a lot of grants and loans specifically to minorities that are available. That takes a lot of time and a lot of kind of like prayer and persistence to, to get those. But there are some of those available. Your local like small business administration can help you with those and help you figure out what those may be. You can find a lot of this online as well. A lot of cities now have entrepreneur centers, and I highly suggest, even if it's an expense, joining your local entrepreneur center because there are your peers in there trying to do the same thing you're doing, you know, maybe with a different product or service, but you're all trying to figure this out together. And it can be an amazing way to have mind share and also to pick their brain on, you know, where are they getting funding? Where is it coming from? So I think that that is another great way to do that. I mean, I've had to get a loan from people many times, friends or, or family members to get things up and running or to patch a period together. So I think you have to just be willing to be really creative. I know a lot of women entrepreneurs that I've worked with, I've suggested to them, why don't you go out and like get a side hustle to your side hustle, whether it's freelance writing or something that you could do from home 
where, I mean, you're not going to earn a ton of money, but maybe it's enough to pay the bills while you're also building your business. So I think you just have to have a mindset that you're willing to do whatever it takes. If you have to put money on a credit card or you have to get like a peer-to-peer lending funding situation, SoFi is a good one, Lending Club. A lot of these companies now let you borrow a certain amount of money, but you got to have a really awesome credit score and you got to have a tax return or a pay stub that proves your income in order to do that. But you'll be taking on debt. So you kind of have to look at, at the options and really know the viability for your business of, is it going to make sense for me to take on debt in order to get this up and going? And sometimes the answer is yes, absolutely. And sometimes the answer is no, it just doesn't make sense. Another thing, like this is not about getting money, but I found this really useful is getting a mentor, somebody who is willing to completely be transparent with you, help you refine what you're creating or the business model you have, and help you really strategize about ways to bring in cash and capital who has done it before. I've found that to be so incredibly helpful. Yes, I agree with you on that. What about also paying paying for a business coach? Well, I think that could be a really good idea. I think business coaches are are great. You have to be careful of getting in that like hamster wheel loop of business coach to business coach to business coach to business coach. Yeah. I see a lot of people do. And so they end up spending a lot of money and they don't get anything necessarily out of it. If you're going to hire a business coach, my best advice is interview two to three different coaches and really get a feel for who they've worked with before, the success stories that they've had and really get a a feel of whether you're going to get value out of what you're paying for. And if the answer is yes, then if you think it's going to make the difference in your business, then then absolutely go for it. But I, I say just be really committed to using the strategies and the tips and every piece of advice they give you. You absolutely just have to give it your all. Yes, you do. In another one of your episodes, I heard that debt is not always a bad thing. Can you tell us what is something positive about debt? Good question. So credit card debt, usually always a negative. (laughs) You know, high interest, (laughs) it's a backbreaker, but sometimes it's necessary. When I got divorced, I had to take on credit card debt to not have to pay my ex-spouse for 10 years. So (sighs) it was worth it for me. So sometimes you have to. Sometimes the car breaks down and there's nowhere else to turn and you have to. That's just the way it goes. And you shouldn't feel shameful. You shouldn't feel stressed. It's just, okay, now what's the strategy to get rid of the debt? You know, that's immediately where your brain should go. But sometimes debt could be good debt. I usually say if you can get debt under 7% interest rate, it's usually maybe not a bad idea to not be in a super rush to pay off that debt. And a lot of times people are like, what? Because student loan rates, you know, most of them are four or five percentage, four to six percent interest rate, maybe you're not in such a hurry to pay off that debt versus pay off that debt, maybe a little extra, but you're also investing your 401k. You're also saving an emergency fund. You're also doing other things that are propelling you forward as well. Yeah, it may add a few extra years on paying off your student loan debt, but look what you have on the other side of it. So I think you just have to evaluate what kind of debt is it? Is that debt helping you go forward or is it really pulling you backwards? Yeah, well, I feel like a mortgage would be a positive debt. 
As long as you're not living over your means and the mortgage stops you from being able to contribute your 401k or save for other goals, you know, if you can do all of those things at the same time, then yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not a bad debt. You know, and I think you talked about this a little bit earlier, lead up to this question, but there's this trend happening right now with this rush for people to pay off all of their debt, car debt, house debt, everything. And I've had couples come to me who are like on the brink of divorce because one person feels so motivated, like they absolutely have to pay off all the debt or they're not successful or they're not doing it right. And the other person has a more laxed opinion. And so it's complete clash. <laughs> and I mean, I just think that's so detrimental to get people in that mindset that if they haven't paid off all their debt, they're not doing this thing right. And, and, and it's so individual. They call it personal finance because it's personal. So what works for you is not going to work for me and vice versa. So yeah. I just, I really caution people to really balance it against their life, what's going on with them, their goals, their vision for their life, and see whether it, it makes sense for them. Going back to the creative way of investing and growing our money, what do you think about these apps? You mentioned Acorns earlier, which is funny because my husband actually bought my wedding band with the money that he accumulated on Acorns. Oh, nice. I love it. <laughs> and it didn't it. take very long. Yeah. So it, I think it works pretty well. But what are other apps that people can use to invest their money in that way where it's like your extra change and things like that? Other than Acorns, really my only other favorite is an app called Stash, which works a lot like Acorns. I've tried all the other apps out there and I haven't found anything other than those two that are really compelling and that are companies that have stuck around for a while. And that's something that's really important to me. I want to make sure that particularly if I'm recommending it to somebody that it's something I've tried and that I feel confident in the company behind the app. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, those two are pretty much my two favorites when it comes to investing in that way. Now, what are some of the latest trends in money that we should all be looking into? Well, you know, I mean, we're sort of a little over it right now, but there was certainly a rush to invest in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency <laughs> oh, and yeah. blockchain and all of those things. And while I think it can be, I'm more interested in blockchain than I am the other two. While I think it can be interesting, I certainly wouldn't be investing in those trendy things before I'm putting money in my 401k or before I'm saving for my emergency fund. You know, all of those like boring foundational things, but the boring in finance is where the gold is. Like that's the where the sizzle happens. What can you talk about what that you said blockchain? Yeah, so um, we're actually going to have a podcast on this coming up very, very soon. Okay. We're going to have an expert talk all about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think that a lot of people might not know what that is. So can you talk a little bit about what blockchain is? Yeah, I'm not super educated on it, which is why I'm going to have an expert educate me more. <laughs> But it's basically the kind of like mechanism or the technology behind Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And it's just a way that kind of money gets gets moved around that's in a new, different fashion that people are super excited about. So, uh, you know, you may hear these buzzwords a lot. And I think this is another message that I'd love to echo. Like, if you, if you don't know about something and you're starting to invest in it, that should definitely make you pause. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always trying to, like, educate people on the podcast to call all of these different 
trends, if you will, that come out. And I'm trying to educate myself as well because I can't be an expert in everything. But there's a lot of talk about blockchain and maybe how it's going to revolutionize our whole financial system, how money is going to get exchanged and, and traded. And are we even going to be using actual currency? Are we going to be using these kind of digital forms of currency to pay for things in the future? That's kind of the yeah. question. And that's certainly what blockchain is trying to push ahead is just an alternate way, an alternate currency. And the problem is right now, it's like a little hard to track <laughs> or to actually yeah. know where the money is. So a lot of people are still a little bit nervous about that. Because you are teaching financial literacy, I want to talk about how we can make access to financial literacy more available to people. Because one thing that I find is that a lot of people out there have a weird relationship with money. And I think that part of this is because the world of finance just looks so daunting and it seems confusing to many. So how do we make access to financial literacy more available? That is certainly my mission. It's the number one reason that I started my podcast because I had even seen from getting my MBA, my master's in business, that most of my fellow students knew nothing about personal finance. And here they were getting these advanced business degrees and they didn't know what to do with their own money, how to save it, how to budget it, how to invest it, all of those sorts of things. And it's hard because most of us do have this preconceived notion about finance, about money. It's stressful. It's you know, I always tell people like, we don't sit around and talk about money with our friends. It's just not a topic that we bring yeah. up, but it should be. It should be something that we remove the stigma from. And I think once we start removing the stigma, then it's not so frightful, but you have to be a champion of yourself and of your own life. And if you're fearful or scared about any part of your financial life, you have to actively seek out help and you have to be a champion because we have not in this country figured out how to do this thing right. And I feel like it is a huge moral dilemma that we are not teaching people how to manage their money. I always tell, tell people, you know, we're, we're teaching kids in school like how to put on a condom. Fantastic. <laughs> you definitely need to know that, you know, information is important information. But I think you also should know how to budget. You should also know how to pay off your student loan when you graduate. Like Those things feel as morally responsible to me. And might I add that, unfortunately, not all schools are still teaching no. kids how to put on anything. That's also a problem, but a discussion for another day. Yes, you got to teach <laughs> so, yourself then. <laughs> so, so now we're not teaching sex ed and we're not teaching financial literacy. Where are we going to end up? Right. I mean, and that's why like, I think a lot of like younger people, that, especially those that are just graduating college now, they're kind of like walking around in the dark. Like, what am I supposed to do? I got this huge student loan and the job market is still not fantastic for certain industries. And it's why our credit card debt is at the largest amount it's ever been at in history, you know, and we're kind of on the brink of, I'm going to be really interested to see are we going to repeat what happened in 2008, 2009 with the housing market? You know, I see signs of those sorts of things. People get amnesia around, around this sort of stuff. Tell us where people can find you online and some of these resources that you mentioned. Do you have them on your website? I have all of my podcasts on my website. You can go to uh, Shauna, S-H-A-N-N-A-H, game, G-A-M-E dot com. 
And I'll definitely list this on the show notes as well or on our website so that people can just click on it and go straight to your site. I have two more questions for you. What is your passion and how do you define success? My passion has changed significantly. Probably five years ago, I would have told you something career related, but now my passion is honestly living the best version of my life that I possibly can, using my skills and talents to help other people and really living a fulfilled life, but my life, not anybody else's. So how do I define success? I guess it's probably the same thing. Are you using your talents and your skills that have uniquely been given to you to better yourself, better your family, and better the world? I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. And let me know which one of Shauna's money tips resonated with you most in our reviews. If your listening platform doesn't let you review us, boo them. Just kidding. You can also comment on our Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to check out Shauna's podcast, Millennial Money. You can find all of these links on our website at diferentepodcast.com. Just click on episode 119. Make sure you listen to the next episode in our access series, where we will explore access through mentorship with former Nestle vice president and current board member of Farmers Insurance, Ken Bentley. That's episode 120, so don't miss it. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you liked this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.